0: I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 14 today. I'm not actually going to be reading this whole passage of Scripture. We're going to be in this. It's going to be several parts over the next several weeks. I, I didn't really want to just break it up into verse by, uh, into a, just a single verse or two verses. Uh, I want to leave this entire passage together. I was actually intending initially to just have one, one final final sermon, um, but then as I studied through it and thought through it and, and planned the sermon, uh, I, I wanted to bring out more than, than just a, a brief overview of, of this final chunk of scripture in Second Timothy. So over the next several weeks, we're going to, with some interludes because of Thanksgiving and such, um, we're going to consider how to handle conflict through Paul's testimony here at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4. And today, the virtue that we're going to highlight is the virtue of humility. Throughout our time in this letter, we have seen Paul give his final exhortations to this young man, relatively speaking, Timothy, a minister, a disciple, and a friend. These exhortations have leaned heavily upon the ideas of purity, faithfulness, and obedience. And yet there's an urgency to Paul's writing, not only in that he recognizes his time upon the earth was coming to an end, but also in that he understood the brevity of life, the brevity of ministry, the reality that windows of opportunity as it relates to life and ministry are not always going to stay open, right? These windows close. Last week we considered this idea through the the concept of two men, Demas and Marcus, right? Mark. Mark. Whereas Paul said, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, speaking of the spirit of the age of that day, and then seeing him say then, bring Mark, for he's profitable unto me, recognizing that a man who 15 years earlier, Paul had said, I'm not traveling with this man. And yet 15 years later, Paul says, that man is profitable. That man has been recovered from the spirit of this age. And so we, see, we have seen throughout this, this time here, Both sorrow and hope, trouble and comfort. And we're going to perhaps experience all of this again in our final foray into this epistle throughout these next several weeks. Paul is going to recount throughout these weeks several points of conflict with an adversary to truth. In this conflict, we're going to gain insight into important characteristics of Paul's approach to conflict that are worth remembering. You know, as Christians, we are always contending for truth. This is true. But unfortunately for some, this has led to being always in a state of defensiveness, a state of contention, some even anger, always ready to fight, always looking out at others and seeing them as untrustworthy, as making ourselves vulnerable, When a man feels backed into a corner, his only way out is to run through those that have backed him there, right? And so when I feel like I'm a target because of the nature of truth, because of the nature of the way that I might live life or the things I might believe, I'm compelled to become defensive and maybe even aggressive. Then I begin to paint those who disagree with me as the enemy. I become emotionally angry Maybe even invested in their destruction or their downfall. Maybe I become joyful in their sorrow, in their suffering, in their demise, perhaps even acting to take part in such things. And on any level, this is a tragedy. It's not the attitude Christ would desire of us, it's not a healthy emotional state, nor is it a healthy spiritual state. It's not our calling, it's not our privilege, it's not our right. It does nothing but harm our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. It turns us into something that at best is an empty shell of religious devotion. But certainly not a reflection of Christ. It can leave us angry, judgmental, hypocritical. And what Paul is going to show us today is a way to live and minister outside of that context. Not that you can stop being the target, standing for truth will always make you the target, always. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter what is happening in culture, doesn't matter, standing for truth will always put a target on you. But rather that you can minister in truth without developing in your heart this defensiveness, this vindictiveness or this aggression, And so the call this morning, the beginning of our call today through the example of Paul is to maintain a heart and a spirit of humility and love in the midst of contention and disagreement. Whether this contention is on a personal level with somebody or whether this contention is on a more broad level as we're seeing in culture and in society today. And as you might understand, this is something which is indeed deeply relevant. How do we stand for truth as Christ stood for truth? We're just going to cover the first two verses of this passage today, verses 14 and 15. Paul says this, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. Of whom be thou ware also? For he hath greatly withstood our words. So recall last week, Paul spoke of Demas. And he said, has for, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. We see another man, another name today. We know very little about this man. Uh, recall with Demas, we had seen him come up a couple of other times. We saw him come up in Colossians. We saw him come up in Philemon as a fellow minister, as someone who Paul loved and who respected. Paul recounts here an incident of which we know nothing. Between himself and a man of whom we know nothing, Alexander, other than the only thing we know is that he was a man who worked in copper. He was a coppersmith. It's evident that he was someone not only who both Paul and Timothy were familiar with, Paul wouldn't be naming him by name if Timothy did not know who he was, right? But a man with whom Paul expected Timothy to have a measure of interaction in the future. To that end, it may be that this man was someone who lived near Timothy. Maybe we would expect at this time that Timothy was perhaps still in Ephesus. Maybe this was someone in Ephesus specifically. Maybe the fact that that Paul mentions his profession, whether that was just to distinguish him as what would, would be common in that day, or whether it was having something to do with an interaction between them as it related to his smithing, we don't know that either. But what we do expect is that Paul had we do know that Paul had a conflict with him and Paul expects that Timothy would know him and Paul is warning Timothy about him it may also be that Timothy was asking or Paul was asking Timothy to come we know that to come to him quickly and perhaps it is that Paul expected that that Alexander the coppersmith would be someone that Timothy would interact with along the journey and so Paul says watch out for this guy because he did me wrong either way he did do some measure of evil to Paul. And once again, we have no idea what this means. The word here, translated regularly in the King James Bible, evil, speaks merely of something bad, right? It doesn't necessarily mean wickedness or sinfulness or or, or anything uh, devilish. It just speaks of, of something that is wrong, something that is negative. It's a significantly more general term than what we would normally take it as. When I say something is evil, I'm often using that term to say that something is wicked. Something is spiritually dangerous. And it can indeed lend itself to those ideas of wickedness and sin. And indeed, often in the scriptures, it does. But it can also simply speak of something which is not good. Something which brings about sorrow, disappointment, or hurt. To this end, we honestly do not know. The extent of this conflict, except these few verses that Paul gives us on the subject. Okay, Pastor, if we don't know, then why are you harping on it? Because I don't want to harp on it. I want to draw out from it a principle, several principles, in fact. Just one today, though. We know, as we will read, that Alexander stood against the words of the apostles. We know that other men who were there did not stand with Paul, but in this moment of conflict, failed to maintain the moral courage to stand for truth. We'll find that over the next few weeks. We know that Paul stood firm in his conviction, stood firm in the truth, and that he experienced throughout this standing firm some measure of victory. But I'd like to draw our attention to more than these facts themselves, to Paul's disposition toward this conflict. Notice that Paul says here, after relaying that Alexander had done him much evil, the Lord reward him according to his works. Take note of that. He did not say, and I got him good. He did not say, or I'll get him next time. He did not say, I hope, fill in the blank, happens to him. Paul recognized that he was not in the place of God. That he had no right to mete out some measure of justice or to even contemplate What consequence would be fitting or appropriate to be done to Alexander the coppersmith? Instead, Paul simply, determinedly, left Alexander, his actions, and his offenses in the Lord's hands. And this leads us to this principle that we're going to consider today. One of five that we'll consider over the next several weeks. In conflict, Christian, always remember humility. One of the major problems in conflict is that we as humans have a tendency to take things very personally. And this is not necessarily something that is unfounded, right? If somebody hurts me, attacks me, uh, there is a, a reflex to take it personally. But what we see when we deal with conflict is that we often see everything through the lens of self. And add to that a not unique but definitely distinctly American element of personal pride and self-defense that most people interpret conflict to be, and it becomes something where conflict tends to become extremely personal to me, or to you, to us, maybe not to you, at least to me. I'll speak for me. And when our pride gets involved, the next thing that happens is an instinctive compulsion to defend ourselves or to come out on top in the conflict to at least do what we can to avoid allowing the other person to think that they have won or that they have come out on top. And this is pride, and nothing but pride. We talked about self quite a bit on Tuesday night as we we asked the question, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? And we looked at the characteristics of the flesh, and we looked at the characteristics of the Spirit, and we recognized that the real, the the simple bargain-basement, Distinction here is self versus God. God's way or my way. That's the that that, that is the fundamental idea there. Have you ever been in a conflict where someone has attacked you or sought to attack you, to harm you, to cheat you, to wrong you, and you've known exactly what they're doing, and you knew that no good would come from fighting? But you refuse to stop fighting because if you did, then the other person would think that they had won. And you don't want them to think that they had won. So you keep fighting. Or maybe even they would win something. And so you keep fighting, even though you know it's harming you just as much as it's harming them, maybe even more so. But you keep fighting because you don't want to give them the satisfaction. That's pride, right? And nothing but pride. That is you. That is self. And nothing but self. You so hate the idea that they might even think that they won when you're choosing to back down or when you might choose to step away or when you might choose to be what we would call in another time the bigger man, whether it's for the sake of yourself or for the sake of your testimony, that just so that you won't get involved in the ugliness, that sort of a thing, but instead you stay in the fight simply so that they can't have the satisfaction of thinking that they've won. In our day, this is best realized in people who talk to win rather than talk to learn or to glean or to come to truth, right? We talked about this a little bit uh, a little while ago in, in 2 Timothy 3, or the end of 2 Timothy 2, the servant of the Lord must not strive. For many of us, whether discussing religion, politics, or anything else, the point of these conversations is not actually to listen or to persuade. We use gotcha quotes, snide snips, attacking phrases meant to make a person look or sound stupid, rather than bringing them to a place of agreement, we simply want to win, right? We want to get get the upper hand. We want to to, to dominate. And in domination, we walk away feeling self-satisfied. And that's pride. Perhaps we experience this in our families in a different way. See, the thing with Families, particularly the husband-wife relationship, or as we might talk about churches, and how we interact one with another, is that any time you have a relationship, you are inherently making yourself vulnerable. And the closer that relationship, the more vulnerable you become. And the thing about vulnerabilities is that in love, our vulnerabilities are protected and are compensated for, so that I have weaknesses and vulnerabilities, and in a functioning relationship, my wife is compensating for my weaknesses and protecting my vulnerabilities. So she knows where I struggle, and she seeks to be a buffer between me and my struggles, between me and my weaknesses, between me and my flaws. But see, because she knows them, In conflict, what does that mean she can do? That means she is the most capable of driving that knife the the deepest because she knows those weaknesses, she knows those vulnerabilities, and she knows those flaws. And so this is something else that happens all the time in arguments, even on a broader level, even on the, on the level of, of people that we don't know that well, public figures, whatever it might be. We scope out people's vulnerabilities and weaknesses, and we use them when we can as an effort in an effort to dominate the argument. Whether those things actually apply or not, all we are looking for is domination, right? The win. To break down our opponent's will to fight. And whereas a conflict, in conflict, a true victory is where people resolve their conflict, in most cases, we perceive victory as having dominated or won the debate. The other person walks away, I say, that means I win. And this is self. This is pride. All of this, Christian, is an outworking of pride, of my need to be validated, of my need to win. It is self. Nowhere is there in this a spirit of love, A spirit of service, a spirit of patience. What did we talk about last week? Tuesday night, excuse me. Jesus said, This is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. In nothing that I have just described is there Christ. Is it there his commandment? Is there obedience? This is all me. And to this end, regardless of the outcome, even if I win the fight, I've lost the battle. Because my testimony has been marred, my relationship and fellowship with the Lord has been at best strained. At worst, I have cut myself off from abiding. And so I suffer loss before the throne of God. May I tell you this, Christian, it's never worth it. No one argument, no one conflict is worth losing your testimony or losing your fellowship with God. It's just not worth it. But notice what Paul says here. He says, the Lord reward him according to his works. As we mentioned already, not only did Paul not take it upon himself to mete out some measure of justice for the wrong that was done against him. Do you think Paul, with all of his ministry and all of his the, 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 the per- perceived loyalty that people had to him, that he could have worked in himself a coalition to stand beside him And fight this fight and win. Paul could have done that. But not only did he not take it upon himself to mete out some measure of justice, but he did not even see fit to ask God for a specific measure of justice, only rather that God would reward Alexander according to his work. And then he left it with God. And this is a principle that we find pretty significantly in both Old Testament and New Testament. And one that I would like to take today, take you through a journey of these principles to understand the nature and relationship of this conflict. And we'll continue this journey of of looking through Old Testament and New Testament examples over the next several weeks. I wanted to pack so many in today, and then I thought, no, we'll just, we'll save some of these for the next several weeks. I'm excited to go through them. But we're going to walk through some New Testament principles in particular today that can help us understand this. In the book of Matthew, we have a unique set of teachings which we now call the Sermon on the Mount. Within the other Gospels, these teachings are recorded in many various times and in many various places. But Matthew records them as a single great sermon that Jesus preached upon a particular mountain. This should not surprise us, by the way, that we see them in different localities and in different places and in different times. There's nothing in the Bible that demands that Jesus only taught each lesson or each principle one time in his ministry. You say, well, pastor, I see a conflict or a contradiction in our Bible. Here it says that Jesus said these things before this group, and here it says Jesus said those things before that group. Let me ask you a question. Have I ever repeated myself? Have I ever preached the same thing in a different context? Some of the things that you're hearing this morning, you might have heard me say to a different group in the past month. That's okay. I can say the same thing twice. I can say the same thing to the same people twice. Jesus could do that too. Jesus probably preached the same thing in several different locations, in several different contexts. This is not a contradiction in our Bible. This is just, they recorded a different event. Well, but it's, it, it's recorded in a little different way here. Jesus said it in a different way in Luke than he said it in Matthew. Maybe it was a different instance. So Luke records Jesus saying the same thing as Matthew, only in a different time and a different location, and that could be normal. There's little doubt that Jesus taught the same thing on many, many occasions. So Jesus is teaching to these disciples who came to him on the mount some principles. And as a part of this great sermon, he said this, beginning in Matthew 5, verse 38. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. That's two. Give to him that asketh thee. And from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Jesus gives here a set of principles that are to be understood within the context of conflict. He gives to the Christian uh, he gives it as a Christian counterpoint excuse me to the religious principle of the day a principle that was drawn out of Old Testament ideals which was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth this religious principle is one of justice right that's the idea justice humans are intrinsically desirous of justice from the perspective of governments and, and, and of, of, uh, of systems that are put in place this is essential it's equitable just this is good but the counterpoint that Jesus gives in these verses introduces a different way of thinking. This thinking is not necessarily one that's supposed to encroach into government. Government is a vehicle of justice, right? We see that throughout the scriptures. And so this isn't a principle that necessarily ought to, to, to step into the halls of justice, but it is a principle that on a singular level, on a one-by-one-on-one one on one relational level, is essential. It's a way of thinking that's rooted not in the results of today, but in the promises of tomorrow. Going all the way back to the beginning of that chapter in Matthew chapter 5, the perspective was that a man or woman who would yield their loyalty to the material or the temporal of this life in deference to the spiritual principles and promises of the life to come would be blessed, right? Blessed are, and then we'd go through the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn, blessed are the meek. These are things which do not necessarily reflect any value or virtue in the material world, but they are essential and valuable in the world to come. So we live in light of and for these principles, and as we do so, we are the blessed. In contrast to the principle of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which is a solid earthly principle of justice. Jesus says to his followers, resist not evil. If a man hits you on the cheek, turn to him the other one. And this doesn't mean that you look away from his strike, right? This means that you give him the other cheek to hit also. If a man sues you at law and he's suing you to take away your coat, don't just give him your coat, give him your cloak also. And finally, if a man compels compels you to go a mile, historians and theologians have told us that this refers to a specific instance where Roman soldiers had the legal right to compel anybody who was not a Roman citizen to carry their equipment for a mile of their march. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But Jesus says, if a man would compel you to go a mile, go with him too. And then he gives a summary. And the summary is this. Give to the man that asks of you. Don't turn away the man that would borrow from you. Why would we not give to a man that asks of you? Or why would you not, why would you turn away a man that would seek to borrow from you? Well, because I'm not gonna let you have that because I might not get it back, right? You might take advantage of me. I let you borrow something, it sits in your garage, I don't get it back. I've been taken advantage of now. And I'm not going to be taken advantage of. I'm not going to make myself vulnerable to you, so I'm not going to give it. Give to him that would ask of you. I don't know what you're going to do with that. I don't know what you're going to do with that money. I don't know what you're going to, how you're going to take that. So I'm not going to give it. It's a principle, right? It's a principle that says, be willing to make yourself vulnerable. Be willing to pursue higher principles than just your own self defense, or your own self-sustenance. Jesus gives a broad, sweeping concept here, which, if taken to its broadest degree, would be deeply problematic. If we were to take this teaching hyper-literally to where I give to every man that asks of me in the hyper-literal sense, to where I am absolutely passive in every situation, regardless of context, well, life would become completely dysfunctional, would it not? I would have to add a layer of hypocrisy to my outworking in order to make anything work, simply to guard from it. In other words, if if, if I take this hyper-literally, every single person that ever asks of me, I'm going to give. So then people start coming, and in order to find an outworking of this principle that will not make me destitute, I say, here's a quarter. Go buy yourself some bubble gum, right? And I can do that. I could do that probably... Pretty well. Everyone that asks of me, give them a a quarter. They can go over their way. They can do what they want with it. And I have given to every man that asks of me. But that's not really the idea here, right? The essence of Jesus' teaching goes back to those first Beatitudes in Matthew chapter five. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed is the man who lives impoverished in spirit, the man whose life is filled not with his own rights, demands, satisfactions, and gratifications, but the man who has chosen to set himself aside an impoverishness of spirit. And that is what these principles espouse. A man who in the midst of conflict, let's get back to conflict, in the midst of conflict is more willing even to absorb a wrong, to absorb an injustice, to absorb disdain, to absorb mockery in the name of doing right than he is to defend himself. And this is not a principle of weakness. This is a principle of meekness. Those of you that have been here for a while are well familiar with this difference. Jesus did not teach weakness. He taught strength. But he did not teach brute strength, direct strength. He taught meekness, strength under control, strength harnessed unto a certain end, And in the case of the believer, meekness is the strength, the fortitude, and the temperance to direct all of my thinking and priorities toward Christ's priorities, toward the kingdom of God, even at the expense of my own desire, my own reputation, my own glory, my own possessions. And that's meekness. When I take that which is mine, whether that be reputation, whether that be intent, whether that be expectation— and I submit it to the kingdom of God so that if God needs me to yield what is mine for his glory, I will do it regardless of what the implications are, regardless of what that, how that makes people think of me, regardless of how people will thus take advantage of me or treat me. And Jesus, of course, is the great example of this as he who, being made in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant being made in the likeness of man. This is meekness. Imagine. Imagine the God, the creator God humbling himself before his creation. Imagine the thorns that the creator God set in place as a curse for man's sin. The God of that creation then allowing to be driven into his head. Imagine that inverse, that paradox, that the God who cursed creation then submitted himself to that curse, not for himself, but for those he loved. That's the picture. This is meekness. At any moment, Jesus could have unleashed power unto his own ends the devil admitted this in the 40 days of tempting uh, at the end of the 40 days uh, when when Satan tempted him in the wilderness if your God make these stones into bread if your God cast yourself off this tower he could do it when he was hanging on the cross they mocked him if you're the son of God take yourself down off that cross he could do it but why didn't he because all of that power, all of that strength was not directed into his will. It was directed into that phrase in the garden, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will, Father, be done. He had submitted his strength to the will of the Father. Christ didn't do it because to do so would have been to disobey the will of the Father, which was the essence of his temptations. At no point in Jesus' life did he ever use his power unto his own ends. It was utterly submitted to the kingdom of God and the will of the Father. And this is meekness. And you know what it takes to have that kind of meekness? Humility. Jesus did not walk upon this earth for his own sake, to gain attention for himself. He did it to glorify the Father. And this is the first essence of handling conflict you want to handle conflict properly conflict in your home conflict in your business conflict in society conflict in our church the first thing that we need to do is get ourselves out of the way do not seek unto yourself your reputation your vindication your victory have the humility to see beyond what you want and see what god wants Let's look at just a couple more principles. Well, of course, we could do this for weeks. 1 Corinthians 6 is a really special one. In 1 Corinthians 6, we have a unique circumstance where two believers had gone to law one against another. And the Bible says this in verses 1 through 7. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you know that the saints... Do you not know, excuse me, that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If ye then, if then ye, excuse me, have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so? That there is not a wise man among you, no, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. So Paul is addressing the Corinthian church here, a church that, if you know anything about First Corinthians, is utterly filled with carnality. They were a church that was carnal in in the deepest of ways. They were a church; they were functioning, and yet they had allowed a tremendous amount of carnality to enter into their midst, fleshliness, earthly thinking. And in this instance, one of any number of rebukes in the book, he is rebuking two men for taking a dispute that they had to law before the Roman legal system rather than setting this dispute among the body to be taken care of within the body itself. And the first problem here is that they are submitting themselves to the wisdom and the authority of unbelievers and the secular system rather than the wisdom and authority of believers and the church. And he states that even the very least affirmed of the believers in their church, even the most simplistic or confused and out-of-touch believer who is submitted to the Spirit of God, even the, most, the, 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 the least esteemed among them, as long as he's submitted to the Spirit of God, would have more true wisdom to offer judgment than the very wisest of unbelieving men. What an interesting concept. So Paul rebukes them for this, but what I really want to point you to is when, when, when Paul then takes this to the next level, he's rebuking them for the manner in which they have gone to law rather than going to, 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 uh, to the judgment of the saints. And then he says in verses six and seven, but brother goeth to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, there's utterly a fault among you because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Paul says, it's a fault that you would submit yourself to the judgment of the world rather than the judgment of the body for this. But even more so, even deeper still, what are you two doing in conflict to begin with? Why have you not simply absorbed the wrong? Why have you not simply chosen to suffer yourself to be defrauded in order to keep this peace in the body? Why do you feel the need to fight for your rights and your possessions rather than suffering the wrong? Unto what good does this fight, will this fight lead? So you win the argument. What is that win going to look like on the day of judgment for you? Is that going to be... Wood, hay, and stubble or gold, silver, and precious stones. So you got the better of your neighbor or your family member or your acquaintance. So they walked away with egg on their face. So you won. You got yours. You got what what was coming to you. And whatever you got, are you going to see it in eternity or is it going to burn up? Either with this earth or on the day of judgment. Was it worth the fight? Was what you now have in the temporal worth sense worthy of what you lost in the eternal sense in that battle? Humility is the call, Christian. A willingness to set yourself aside and that knowing in full faith that God is able and willing to defend you so you have no need to defend yourself. Is this not what Paul said in this very passage that we're studying? The Lord reward him according to his works. God, you know what he did to me. You know how he treated me. You know his heart, his intent, his confusions, his ignorances, and you know mine also. So in accordance with that degree to which you know what's going on here, not that I regard his treatment as severe or, uh, uh, or wrong, but you regarded his treatment as severe or wrong, reward him accordingly. In other words, here's the thing. We bring a lot of assumptions into conflict, don't we? Assumptions about how much a person knows, about how much a person actually may want to hurt me, about what a person has gone through that have brought them to this point. I don't know all of those ins and outs. I don't know. Now... We can acknowledge that a person should not treat others that way. We can acknowledge in conflict that maybe a person has wronged me and that it is wrong. Paul acknowledges here it's wrong. But what Paul doesn't do here is try to assume upon Alexander's heart or intent. But you know who does know all of that? God does. And you know who can do the best job at rewarding Alexander according to his works? God can. And God says he will. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. So Paul says, in accordance with the degree, not that I regard his treatment as severe or wrong, but that you regard his treatment as severe and wrong. Father, reward him accordingly. And I will leave that to you, God, because I'm not going to vindicate myself. I'm not fighting. I'm not avenging. I will not mar my testimony. I will not mar the treasures in heaven. You avenge God. And it is well that Paul did this. I mentioned just a few moments ago, Romans chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense no man to no man, evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt keep coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. This passage began with a singular command. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be humble, Christian. Start with humility. And in the context and the basis of humility, recompense no man evil for evil, recompense no man railing for railing, the Lord will reward thee for your works, but I will not. With every ounce of your being, as much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. Avenge not yourselves, give place unto wrath. Anger will bring you nowhere good. It will take you to no place of virtue. So give place unto wrath. Under this principle, Under this principle, not I'm going to let everyone get away with it and everyone just gets away with it. Under this principle, that there's coming a day where every man will stand before the throne of God. And if you believe in that day, and if that day puts any fear into your heart, then you can know that no one has gotten away with anything, Christian. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. It's not your duty, it's not your privilege to take vengeance upon yourself. But don't worry, the Lord will repay. And so you are now free to treat that person in humility with the kind of love that Christ treated you. If I will let the Lord do this, of course, and if I choose not to, if I take vengeance into my own hands, well, vengeance is now done. Don't expect that God will avenge you for something that you took into your own hands. If the vengeance has taken place, then the vengeance has taken place. But to the extent that you will pursue humility, give place to wrath, allow the Lord to avenge, to that degree, God will do his part. And if I can trust it, if I'm willing to trust it, the Lord will repay. And so Paul did not overcome evil with evil, but instead he overcame evil with good. And he commended the remainder to God. So James tells us as we continue this little foray through the New Testament principles, James 4, verses 6 through 10. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. That's humility, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. And this has to be seen with eyes of faith, Christian. The way the world works, you will not be able to see this play out in temporal, carnal means. You have to trust the Lord on this one. Humble yourselves in his sight and allow him to exalt you in due time. How do we deal with conflict? What do we do when there's disagreement, when there are attacks levied against us, when every fiber of our being cries out to attack back, to be vindicated, to show our strength and rebuff the idea of weakness? Christian, the first step is humility. Recognizing that what you are going through should not be about you. That you have a chance in this to first represent something in someone greater than yourself. That's Christ. Second, align yourself with God's design and so invoke upon yourself God's blessing and God's advantage. And third, commend your vengeance to God who is able to perform that task of vengeance far better and far more justly than you ever could. And this is where our consolation lies. If you have the faith to receive it. In this, in this deference, in this humility, in this turning of the other cheek, as our our phrase, our idiom has come to to be brought about in our culture, in this idea of deferring eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, in this idea of absorbing the wrong, there can be a greater joy than any feeling of personal vindication. In this deference, there is a power, a personal agency, an overcoming that no amount of revenge can ever buy you. Revenge is sweet to the tongue, but bitter in the belly. Tastes great as you're chewing it. Once it swallows, then you realize what you just ate. Humility is the root of joy. And those who seek its path will find in it no bitterness at all. And so it is that we explore this first principle of handling conflict this morning. And this first principle is humility. Are you in conflict today? Maybe there's personal conflicts going on. Neighbor, spouse, sibling child, parent, church member? Are you humble? Have you set yourself aside in this thing? Are you seeking unto the eternal or are you seeking unto the temporal? Are you seeking unto the principles of Christ or are you seeking unto the principles of self? This is the first step in the process. Over the next several weeks, we'll continue to lay, layer upon this principles that will help us see our way through conflict in a manner that is pleasing unto the Lord. But the first step to this is getting yourself out of the way. Set aside your pride. Set aside your vindication. Set aside your justice. Set aside all of these things that you feel you need and start with the principles of Christ. Are you bearing the mind of Christ in this? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That was shame. That was mockery. That was scorn. The creator of the universe being mocked as he suffocated and died on the cross. But he took it. And humility, driven by what we're going to learn about next, which is love. It's not for this week. This week we've got enough to work on. How are you doing, Christian? We're in a time right now where society is rapidly turning against truth. Evil is called good, and good is called evil. The wicked are rolling stones, they're laying traps. And it's frustrating to watch, isn't it? It's frustrating to see the injustice. It's frustrating to see the confusion. It's frustrating to see the projection as evil takes everything that they say that they are doing and they they accuse the righteous of it. But you know what? They did the same thing to our Lord, they did the same thing to his followers. Christians called each other brothers and sisters in Christ. They called them cannibals, said that they were degenerates, incestuous. Jesus came, preached righteousness. They said he does these miracles through the power of the prince of devils. They called him Beelzebub. Jesus says, if they hated you, don't be afraid that if they hated me, don't be afraid. Don't be surprised when they hate you, right? Right? And if they hate you, know they hated me first. So what does that mean? Does that mean that we are ready to vindicate, ready to avenge? Well, if you know what? If vindication comes, praise the Lord for it. There are institutions in place that are supposed to vindicate us. That's their job. If they don't do it, God will judge them too. Maybe they will. Maybe we'll still see that vindication and God help us that we would. But either way, What's our part in the conflict? Let's start with humility, Christian. And then we'll see where that takes us. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray for God's people. I know what's happening in the macro level where this message could touch our hearts, but I pray for the micro level. I pray for, aside from what's happening in society, I pray that this message would find root in our hearts as it relates to individual relationships. Family, friends, loved ones. Maybe even as we get closer to Thanksgiving, some people are dreading what Thanksgiving might normally mean as it relates to the family and meeting together and the arguments that ensue, the conflicts that are drudged up. Maybe there's people that are struggling right now. Maybe there's a husband and a wife that are in conflict and they've been using each other's weaknesses and vulnerabilities as swords to jab with. Maybe there's people in the church who are in conflict and there's lack of fellowship among them. Father, whatever it might be, I pray that in this week you would well up within us a determination unto humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Help us to be among the blessed. Help us to do what is right. Help us to elevate the truths of your word and the design that you have put in place above even what we see with our eyes, what we hear with our ears, what we taste with our tongues, what we feel with our fingers. May you be glorified in our response this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.